If you're just joining us, uh, we, we try to do um, a series every March that highlights testimonies and witnesses from our very own congregation. Last week, uh, as we talked about before, um, it was a testimonial from uh, Michelle Lawrence, and you can find that on our YouTube page. If you go to YouTube and you search social network evangelism, uh, that you will find uh, our page and you'll find some of the videos we posted there. We posted last week's message. We've got the first two from Trap, so you can go back and listen to that. This one will be up sometime this coming week as well. We've got other awesome content. We have a show that we uh, are putting on YouTube called Rewind where we take old rest, uh, excuse me, wrestling. <laughs> there you go. That's funny. Old sermon DVDs from upstairs and in the library, and we say, you know what, let's put them on the internet. And so we, we pull those messages from yesteryear. The first one that's uploaded is from 2015. You can go back and watch that. We've got all kinds of content, amazing stuff coming. Uh, so we're really ramping up our social media thing. I do want to make uh, one announcement that I did miss, and that uh, is that Miss Anna Holmes has had uh, the baby. And uh, as far as I know, and I don't have any representatives, uh, well, Bobby can, can correct me if I'm wrong. Everything's still good. Everything's going good. Um, uh, the coolest picture to me is a, a picture of, of Ashley's face when she saw that baby for the first time. That was the, one of the sweetest pictures I think I've ever seen. It's an amazing story. And I have not Mr. Bobby and, uh, I, and John, if you're, if you're still here and you're listening, I have not talked to these ladies yet, but I do actually plan on getting um, John and, and, and Anna and Ashley and Shane together in front of a camera and to kind of uh, do a little interview talking about their success story and all that's coming. Uh, so these are some really awesome things. God's doing a great work. If you don't know the story, I'll just do a brief recap. Um, Ashley is Anna's sister, and they've been trying to have a child unsuccessfully. Well, Anna and John decided to let Anna, uh, through much prayer and, and, and conversation, let Anna be a surrogate uh, to, for Ashley and Shane so that they could have a child and the baby was born uh, just, just, uh, just recently. So the baby's doing great. Anna's doing great. We're so thankful for that. <clears throat> um, let me get just a little reset here for, for you. If you are uh, just joining us, we are, we are talking about salvation this month, and we have a testimony from Kelly Robbins, who's going to come up. Miss Kelly Robbins is going to deliver a powerful, powerful testimony. And Kelly, I have to say, me and you did not actually talk before this about what you were going to say, but your, your testimony fits exactly with the message this morning, and I'm so thankful that the Lord worked that out for us. Um, so the title of the message this, uh, this morning is, Why Do We Need the Cross? Why do we need the cross? This may seem like an easy question, and in truth, the answer isn't complicated. But I'm willing to go out on a limb and say, you and I struggle with applying the truth I have to share today with the people around us. Before we dive into it, I need to address an issue. Have you ever struggled to accept, forgive, and move past something someone else claiming to be a Christian has done? Let me read that again. 
Have you ever struggled to accept, forgive, or move past something someone else claiming to be a Christian has done? Have you ever struggled to rationalize or understand how someone who knew better could possibly have made a mistake so big? I know I have. I remember trying to talk to this friend of mine who was really interested in working with young people and maybe becoming a youth leader. He had a lot of experience in, let's say, the wrong things and had slept in his truck many nights and had some issues with drugs and alcohol and was not afraid of a few tattoos. Honestly, he was just a good old country boy who had a tendency to make wrong choices and not think things through. I'd often go to his house uh, to check in on him and see how he was doing. Now, I remember this one day, he said something that stuck with me. He said, you know, everybody else writes me off, doesn't give me much of a chance, and treats me like a troublemaker. But you've always treated me like a friend. You guys want to know why that stuck with me? Because I didn't feel that way about myself. I always felt like I was one step away from writing him off because I didn't want to get involved in the stuff he was involved with. I was always nervous around him because I never knew what was really going on in his life behind closed doors. He ended up showing up at the parsonage in Vardaman when I was pastoring one day after we had already moved back to Pontotop. We were living with my in-laws and we had a newborn. He asked where I was and I told him I didn't live there anymore. He was hurt and lost and confused after making yet another bad choice and needed someone to talk to. I spent a good while on the phone with him, but I never did tell him the new address I had moved to. I'm ashamed of that now, but I did try my best to treat him like a friend because I knew he needed one. And in reality, I could have done more for him as we grew up. My biggest hang-up was that if you claim to be one thing, but are living a life contrary to that, then you were a hypocrite. And I wasn't sure a hypocrite was a good fit for a youth leader. He has since moved, excuse me, he has since seemed to turn his things around for himself and has gotten a very reputable job. But I still live with the failures, just like he lives with the scars. Have you ever been in that situation? Has someone ever confided in you about something they were going through and inside your mind you secretly judged them for it? Have you ever failed to see the true value in someone because you couldn't get past their mistakes? Have you ever thought less of a person because they couldn't seem to get their life together? No? Well, let me get a little bit more personal this morning. What about that dad who has three kids and makes the mom work so he can stay at home, sleep, and play video games all day? What about the husband who marries a sweet girl but is more like a dictator than a lover and rules the house with an iron fist of fear? What about that young mom who gives up her baby because she values her drug life more than her baby's life? What about those two homosexual men looking to adopt a child of their own? 
What about that co-worker who refuses to help accomplish anything, but is quick to take credit for the job well done? What about that boss who'll do anything to throw you under the bus if it means he gets the promotion? What about the liberal next door who votes to take your Second Amendment away? Is that enough? You want me to stop? For me it is. So in light of these difficult questions, let me push just a little bit further. Stay with me. Who deserves to cross more? The lesbian or the liberal? Who deserves to cross more? The deadbeat dad or the dad who beats his wife and kids? Who deserves to cross more? The alcoholic or the mom who gets an abortion? We don't even have to be that dramatic. Who deserves to cross more? The self-righteous or the self-indulgent? Who deserves to cross more? The Christian on Sunday, sinner on Monday, or the good guy who just can't help but make the wrong choices? You may think the answers to these questions are easy or that maybe they don't apply to you, but my friend, when faced with people guilty of the same things, if we're honest, we make judgments in our head almost by default. As I was thinking about my friend this week and thinking through some of these questions, God gave me something powerful that I want to share with you. I want you to pay attention very closely to this. When you and I become holier than the cross, we forget why we need the cross and are unable to lead anyone to Jesus. I want to say that again. I want you to hear me very carefully. When you and I become holier than the cross, we forget why we need the cross and are unable to lead anyone to Jesus. Unfortunately, you probably have someone in your mind who fits the descriptions we've laid out this morning. Truth be told, it's a complicated and difficult path to navigate. So what do we do? Who really deserves the cross more and why? Thankfully, Jesus actually has something to say about this and it's going to clear up a lot of the confusion for us. So let's take a look at John chapter 8 starting in verse Number one, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. Jesus had been teaching at the temple the day before, decided to take a break, went to the Mount of Olives and spent the night. And then the next day he went back to the temple. And this is what happened. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisee brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Now let's just stop right there for just a moment. Let's just stop. Two phrases I want you to understand. Teachers of the religious law and woman caught in the act of adultery. These are important because in the first century, the first century Jews didn't have a completed 66 book Bible to go by. What they had was the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and the writings of the prophets and the oral traditions. They had the Old Testament. They had the law. Now, in this situation, what does the Old Testament, what does the law, what does their version of the Bible say? Well, in Leviticus chapter number 20 and verse 10, this is exactly what the Bible says. If a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. That's in your Bible. Now, a little side note, this don't cost you anything. If we are to treat all of the Bible 
as if it's 100% applicable 100% of the time, I want to ask you how many of your friends and family and maybe how many people in this room are still alive after this verse is carried out. That's what I want to know. That's up to you to ask. But that's the thing. That's what your Bible says, and that's what they were going by. They brought this woman who was not, uh, there's not a rumor of her adultery. There's not some suspicion. She was caught in the act of adultery, and they brought her to the most religious place that they had where the teacher was teaching, and they said, here she is. I can tell... By the look on your faces that I need to go just a step further. Why is it significant? This is significant because although Jesus was born in the New Testament, he was actually there from the beginning. Y'all believe that? Jesus was born in the New Testament as a baby, right? We're there? But Jesus has no beginning. Are we there? You with me? This is yes. Okay, that's what, we're all there. Jesus has always been. So you know what that means? When Leviticus chapter number 20 and verse 10 was written down, guess who probably gave it to Moses? Jesus. He was there. He was there when it was given to Israel. He was there every time it was implemented. There have been thousands, thousands of men and women by this time that have probably lost their life because of this Jewish Rule. This means Jesus was on board with this Leviticus verse. And he was there when they implemented it. It looks as if this verse would claim another victim in the temple this day. And you know what? It would be a righteous killing. But let's just see how this worked out. As we continue... They put her in front of a crowd and they said, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? The law of Moses says stone her. What do you say? You were there when it was written. You were there when it was implemented. You might have even told Moses to write it down. What do you have to say about this situation? Now, for the record, we may view the religious leaders and Pharisees as bad guys, but technically they were correct. We need to be careful, though, because it's really easy for you and I to leverage something written in the Old Testament to justify our actions in the 21st century. It's really easy to justify something that was written in the Old Testament to leverage why we do things today. Let me give you an example. Y'all want an example? Good. I got a yes. Thank you. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Anybody ever heard that? Anybody ever said that? Have you ever been like, you know what I think needs to be done, Brother Bobby? You know what I think needs to be done because they did this? The Bible says eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Anybody ever done that? What about this? What about Sodom and Gomorrah? Have you ever heard someone say or been guilty of saying, you know what I think they should do with all the homosexuals? They should put them all in one spot and Sodom and Gomorrah. I made that last word up. Gomorrah. 
They should treat them like they did in the Bible, right? Some of the most heinous actions done by man have been done in the name of some verse found in the Old Testament, taken out of context and applied to the wrong person. That's a mouthful. Let me say that again. Some of the most heinous acts done by man have been done in the name of some verse found in the Old Testament, taken out of context and applied to the wrong person. But anyways, the Bible continues. In verse 6, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. They tried to trap him. And if we're not careful, we'll do the same thing to our friends and family. We're quick to be the judge, jury, and executioner toward anyone who is in blatant sin, unaware or completely oblivious to how Jesus would have handled the same situation. Think back to a time when you reacted poorly to a situation that somebody brought to you, that somebody confided in you. Think back to a time when you acted poorly about someone's struggle, about someone's sin, and you just flew off the handle in a righteous rant, never once thinking about how Jesus would have handled the same situation. The Bible says they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Now notice, no arguments, no name-calling, no harsh words, no yelling, no fighting. He's not even red in the face. Jesus' response was almost one of annoyance. It's easy to want to see yourself as the woman caught in adultery in this story, but I think, if we're honest, we are really more like the religious leaders in Pharisee. And with that in mind, let's take a look at what Jesus said. First thing he says, all right! Imagine if you're the woman caught in adultery right then, like, they're talking about stoning her, they're talking about killing her, her only hope is found in Jesus, and the first thing that comes out of Jesus' mouth is, all right! Jesus was like, you know what? That's fair. It's in the Bible. I did say that this is what needs to be done. Jesus wasn't rejecting the Old Testament. He was agreeing with it. But then he throws a wrench in the whole conversation and makes things uncomfortable for us too. This is what he says. But, now look, I don't know how much Bible you guys know, but buts in the Bible can either be a good thing for you or a bad thing for you. And in this case... It's just not that great, okay? He said, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Wait a minute, Jesus. Wait just a second. Wait. She was caught in adultery. You do understand what that means, right? She was caught in adultery. But let he who is without sin throw the first stone. But Jesus, the Bible says, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Wait, 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 wait. What about the lives, the family she destroyed? What about the the distrust and the hurt and the heartbreak? But let the one 
who has never sinned throw the first stone. You see, Jesus didn't have to go talk to the friends and the neighbors. Jesus didn't have to get the whole scoop. He didn't have to know the whole story. He knew the woman would face consequences. She'd live with the rest of her life. He understood that. But when it came to her condemnation and whether she got the right to be one of uh, close to Jesus or not, or the right to live, you know what Jesus said? The one who is without sin can cast the first stone. It was not their right to pass that kind of judgment. Bible continues, verse 9, When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Now, why do you think it says, starting with the oldest? That always, that's like a little jewel right there. Maybe you want to mark it in your Bible. Starting with the oldest. You know why it says that? Because if I'm in that situation and Jesus just dropped that bombshell, the first thing that goes into my mind is the sin I committed yesterday. And the sin I committed the day before. And the sin I committed the day before that. And the day before that. And the day before that. You see, because if the, if the measuring stick, in order to pass that kind of judgment, is I can't have sin in my life, then guess what just happened? I just got disqualified. I just got disqualified. And you did too. You did too. For me and you, this is a problem. For the wife of the man who the adulterous woman had slept with, this was a problem. For the devout, church-going, Bible-reading Christians, this was a problem. Jesus completely went against his very own word and showed mercy and grace to this woman. Remember, he didn't argue or fight or yell. He just gave a blanket statement that just so happened to be his ace in the hole that he knew they couldn't argue against. The Bible continues in verse number 10. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. This is so anti-Bible. It's so anti-Old Testament. How in the world could Jesus condone something like this? Did he need more evidence of her infidelity? Nope. Did he need to talk to the wife and kids and neighbors to see what they had seen, heard, or what they knew before he made the decision? Nope. How is this possible? That, my church, I can't answer. The cross. You see... The reason why me and you need the cross is because without it, we're all sinners lost without hope. Without the cross, we're all sinners lost without hope. Without the cross, there's nothing standing in the way of the religious leaders stoning the woman caught in adultery. There's nothing standing in the way, but thank you, God. There is a cross. You see, the intention of the law was to point out our need for the cross, not our need for execution. 
God's judgment toward our sin has now been passed to his son, which means the judgment afforded to the woman caught in adultery was placed on the shoulders of the only one who could bear it, the only one who knew no sin. And my friend, when we take it upon ourselves to point our fingers and destroy testimonies with harsh words and accusations, we are claiming the punishment Jesus suffered can't, doesn't, and won't cover their transgression. When we become like the religious leaders and Pharisees, we become holier than the cross and therefore claim it has no effect. No, my friends, you and I need the cross because without it, we are all the woman caught in adultery. Every single one of us. You caught in adultery. You caught in adultery. You caught in adultery. Every single one of us are destined to be stoned and killed and hell following behind it. So why do you need to know this? Why do you need to know this? I want to take you back to something we said earlier. When you become holier than the cross, you forget why you need the cross and you, be, you can no longer lead someone to Jesus. You become ineffective. What if we stopped being harsh and judgmental and being judged during execution or with everyone else's sin and just focused on ours? What if we took a page from Scripture and said, He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Maybe we could lead more people to Jesus if our approach is love first. That's the call. Why do we need the cross? Because the cross leveled the playing field. Maybe your sin is not adultery. I don't know what your sin is. I don't need to know. But what I can tell you, I can tell you is this. Whatever that sin may be, me and you are on the same place. We're at the same place before the cross. I want you to know something. This is so important. The adulterer and the wife beater can have the same place in front of the cross. The heterosexual and the homosexual can have the same place in front of the cross. The liar and the thief can have the same place in front of the cross. And when they come to Jesus, you know what Jesus is going to say? Where are your accusers? Is there not anyone left to condemn you? If they don't condemn you, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And if that's how Jesus looks at the rest of the world, how dare you and I look at it any different? Why we need the cross is because without it, we're all sinners lost without hope. Kelly Robbins is going to come and deliver a powerful testimony. A powerful testimony. I want you to listen to the words that she has to speak and give her some warm welcome.
lucky for you, um, I got to speak in the first service, so I'm not as anxious or nervous. Um, I'll start with uh, yesterday, Brother Michael and Miss Michelle texted me and uh, they asked if I was ready and they let me know they were praying for me. And so it, it became real. Uh, I had not talked much to my husband about it. Um, one, because I include him and I didn't want to hear what he had to say about it. <laughs> and, um, and, and two, again, it was so personal that um, I just wasn't ready to, to lay it out there. And um, my husband, Heath, I should have introduced them. They were at the first service. Heath, I'm married to Heath Robbins, and I have two kids, Jackson and Swayze. But I finally caught him in there yesterday, and I said, Heath, I just need you to um, hear my points and tell me if, if you think they sound okay. I, I don't know if I needed comfort or for just him to know that I was about to talk about him, just a little bit. And the first thing that came out of his mouth was, why are you getting up there and speaking? And I was like, babe, let me tell you what I have in my first paragraph, and I, I think you'll understand. So I, I'm an English teacher, um, but don't judge me. Um, this is a whole different situation than my classroom. Uh, this is very informal, um, and it has a lot of emotion in it. So there might be a, a few things said incorrectly, but y'all just, just enjoy, please. I put, as I sit here writing, I question myself, is this going to be good enough? Will people think, why is she up here talking? What have I been through that reflects a heart-wrenching testimony? And at this moment, I realize I am right back at those days of worrying what others think of me. Worrying what if I walk down and get on my knees? Will they think I did something the night before? Will they roll their eyes because they have seen me outside of church? And now my emotions are flowing back like a river that has just busted the levee. I begin to feel the same entrapment that guided my life before finally falling to my knees. First, let me take you to three weeks ago before today. Brother Jeff, Brother Jeff approached me on a Wednesday night casually. And casually, he asked me if I would get in front of a camera and answer a few questions about my salvation. I remember thinking, can I tell a preacher no? I mean, I've told him no before when he asked me to help with the nursery, but that was for my own good. So quickly, I said, maybe. Then you can all imagine how Dr. Brother Jeff, a retired car salesman, made me feel this would be a great thing. Easy and quick. I replied, okay, that is fine. But you know who should be doing this? Yes, I threw my husband's name out so fast. Brother Jeff just laughed. I believe the last time he told Heath he would need to speak in front of the church, I had to go get Heath out of the parking lot. This was the day we dedicated Swayze. I am not sure who I was madder at that day, Heath for hiding, or Brother Jeff for thinking it was the funniest thing ever that Heath was scared to speak in front of others. Anyways, I'll come back to Heath later. Back to Brother Jeff. So two weeks ago, he came up to me again on a Wednesday night. He said, are you ready? Yes, sir, waiting to meet with Brother Michael. Oh no, we changed plans. You will give your testimony March the 8th in front of both services. I am pretty sure I used the words liar and oh my over the next few seconds. Then Brother Jeff started talking and did not stop to give me a chance to fix the issue. And so here I am, nervous that I will not find the right words to say. Please know that I've had a few events that impacted my salvation. Yet to me, my story is about the everyday Christian, 
a girl who was too scared to ask the Lord into her heart because she, would worry, she worried she would fail. A girl who thought worldly love was all she needed. So here we go. Growing up, I had a good life. My parents were very loving and very protective over me and my siblings. Well, Russ was just simply pampered. He is the baby. My parents always found a way to meet our wants and needs. Very rarely did I feel like life was hard. The only thing that was hard was catching the softballs Daddy hit at us. Granddaddy was never too far away to calm him down just a bit. So not only did I have my parents, I had grandparents. In my world, having that group was amazing. It was clear that the Yateses worked hard, played sports, and went to Bethlehem Church. Bethlehem has always been my home. No matter who came or went, my family devoted our hearts to this place a long time ago. With that, it makes it a little easier to speak to you today. I know if God had a time and a place for me to speak, it is here. Now this brings me to my first thing in life, failure. I was raised to be an athlete, someone who gave everything they had to be the best. No one, no barrier, no amount of pain would stand in my way of being number one. I knew from a young age that coming in last was not acceptable or something you were proud of. Whether it was my granddaddy yelling, or my daddy questioning my effort, I knew what it was to be great. Yet, around the age of 13, I remember feeling like a loser when I walked into church on Sundays. I was not the best at anything. Showing up on time, reading the Bible, leading others, bringing others to know Christ, bringing myself to know him. So I hid. I hid my heart from God. When he came knocking, I would start looking around the church to distract myself. When it felt like he was sitting on my shoulders, the weight of 10 men on me, I bit my lip to keep from crying. Over and over again, I rejected God working on me. I would tell myself, there's no way you can be a Christian. You're not the worst person in the world, but you are a complete sinner, not a Christian. No way God would let you play on his team. And again, I was supposed to be the best. And if I was not, I did not do it. That is why you golf was not for me. I gave that sport up so fast. So I made myself believe that dedicating myself to the Lord would only be in vain. Now to the second thing that played a role in my life, my husband Heath. As I am writing this, I know when I say his name, he is going to think, why did I get to know her? Heath has always been a private person, but I think this one time I can use my Brother Jeff made me card to get me out of trouble. So here is how he and I impacted each other. At the age of 12, yes 12, I had a major crush on this fluffy, fiery redhead. I still look back at pictures and question both of our sight. <laughs> we grew up together, going back and forth between relationship to I do not ever want to talk to you again high school stuff. Oh my, what were we thinking? Yet we made it back to each other over and over again. Things were never really serious until I began Blue Mountain College. At this point in my life, 2021, everyone I knew was getting married and having babies. I was not ready for either. I didn't want either. Yet it hurt my feelings that I, the one who had loved someone longer than any other, was still uncertain about her relationship's future. And let me remind you, even at this age, Heath nor I was saved. 
We both lived in sin, some days together and some days apart. Either way, the fact that we both were separate from God impacted our relationship. Then the summer before I got saved, two major things happened. Heath asked me to marry him, and I took a New Testament class at Blue Mountain College. I have to add this in just to show you how normal I am. When Heath asked my daddy if he could ask me to marry him, my daddy said no. <laughs> he told Heath we were not ready to get married. Needless to say, I put the ring on anyways. Have I mentioned I'm hard-headed? Now looking back, man was he right. So after putting the ring on my finger, I thought everything would be great. Yet our relationship was still a mess, and I knew that getting married was not going to fix it. Now to my New Testament class, Dr. Meeks. He loved teaching New Testament. He expected you to read numerous chapters a night and then come to class the next day ready for a quiz. I had to have this class, so I had to study the Bible. How lucky I was to have all of this happen together. By reading my Bible each day, I started to understand more and more about being a Christian. I found verses that made me realize I did not have to be perfect, that being a Christian was about allowing God to love you and to fix your imperfections. I also realized that if I not only wanted to marry Heath, but actually have a successful marriage, we both needed God in our lives. So this is the tricky part. How could I be a Christian and Heath not be? For the longest, I let this yet again keep me at my pew. I was just not ready to lose him. I was so focused on worldly love that I blocked my chance to feel everlasting love. What was I thinking? Finally, that summer, I did the one thing that I believe led me to my salvation. I prayed. And my prayers were goal-oriented too. I asked God every night for one of two things. Either help me remove Heath from my life, or dear Lord, please help guide us to you. That summer, I felt myself drifting, drifting away from Heath, so I continued to pray. Please allow him to go or me to go far away, or please let us come together, falling on our knees. Lucky for me, I had the New Testament class in a broken relationship. Lucky for Heath, Chris Cook was the most annoying Christian Heath could be around. <laughs> I use annoying in a positive way, but I know there were days when Heath would hide from Chris. Chris, thank you for loving my Heath enough to never stop. Whether you know it or not, you played a precious role in this story. And at the end of that summer, our church hosted a week-long revival. God had been working on me for years, but this was the first time I was beginning to become receptive to him. I knew that week that my life would change for the better. His presence was all over me, and this time, he had me. And to make the story a little sweeter, God had he too. It still amazes me to this day how very different our salvation stories are written by God. Yet he still chose both of us. Now, I fully believe he would have chosen me first, but I will save that for another day as well. To tell you the exact date it happened, I cannot. I've always hated history and dates. Just not my thing. But I can tell you exactly where I was standing. And if you're a member of Bethlehem, you know. I can tell you that night was about the weights of your past holding you down. I can tell you I did not get down on my knees, but God did not mind once again coming and standing right beside me. I can tell you that night I made the best decision of my life.
God, thank you. Now I want to leave you with two events that impacted me. Teenagers, listen to this one. At the age of 15, my heart stopped. Due to a blockage, my heart would beat around 230 beats per minute to allow enough blood to be pumped through my body. I knew something was wrong, but did not tell anyone. I thought it was nothing big. I mean, I was 15, very active, and had never been to the hospital. At a ball game one night, I kept thinking I was going to pass out. My chest was killing me, but I thought it was just the cold air. When I would run, it would help. The doctors say I should have died that night. My daddy accused me of smoking. <laughs> One month later, I woke up around midnight to severe chest pains. After begging my parents to take me to the hospital, daddy said I had a cold, my heart finally stopped as they took me to the room. That night, my life ended for a few seconds, and then thankfully God said, not yet. I tell you this to say I would have lived in hell for eternity. I was a good 15-year-old. I did not do drugs, cuss much, made A's, and had friends. I was a good daughter, too. But because of my fear and selfishness, I pushed God away. Reflecting back now how terrible it would have been to never see my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother, or my fluffy redhead in heaven. Do not wait. Let God tell you when he is ready for you. And parents, this one is for you. At the age of 26, my son Jax, who was 11 months old, had a terrible accident while with the babysitter. As I was working, I got a call from Heath to get up to the hospital immediately. A petition wall fell on his head, causing a fracture to his skull and his tongue to be split into numerous sections. Later the next morning, Jax would have a surgery to put his tongue back together, and numerous tests ran to assess the damage to his skull and brain. After spending a few days at Le Bonheur, we were sent home, hoping the injuries would heal in just the right way. Distracted by the events, I felt nothing the first few days after the accident. I was so intent on taking care of my jacks that everything else in the world ceased to exist. He could not use a bottle or a passy, which he loved so much. We fed him with a dropper. His head and face were black and blue, so I felt nothing but his pain. Yet, when things slowly got better with him, I started to feel the true weight of what had occurred. I had almost lost my most valuable possession. And so I became angry. I made myself believe that I was the only one who could take care of Jax. So I wanted everyone else to go away. I remember thinking, if I could just put him back in my belly, everything would be okay. And it did not take long for God to come knocking once again. It was like he kept showing me that things could be worse. I had to talk to God a lot during that time. And time and time again, he comforted, comforted me with knowing that no matter what, Jackson and I could spend eternity together. He made it clear to me that hell had no place for our love. God was my protector during this time. Not that he allowed Jax to spend another day with me, but that he showed me that no matter what comes or goes, there is nothing that we, as Christians, cannot handle. And quite often, this demon of a memory comes flowing back. I still struggle to let my kids get too far out of my reach. Yet then I feel God grabbing my hand and squeezing oh so tight. 
In closing, God loved me enough to never give up on me. He did not stop the trials or heartaches, but he did show me how I could face another day. And I'm so lucky to be a Christian, not someone who is perfect. I mean, I teach grown kids all day. Some days are just hard. I say things I should not. Yet every night I get to talk to God about it. And the next day, he reminds me how truly blessed I am to be one of his. Thank you.